Welcome to episode four of Come and Play. Come and Play talks about all things sex toys, kink, gaming, and geek culture. My name is Elia Winters. I'm an erotic romance novelist of geeky, kinky romance. In addition to this podcast, you can also visit me on my website at eliawinters.com. Last week, I shared my kink origin story with you. Those of you who tuned in, thank you for listening. This week, I want to talk a bit about my philosophy of sex toys in general, and then I'm going to share a brand new review of a couple of pulsators from Fun Factory. There actually is a giveaway attached to this review, so you don't want to miss it. I've been a fan of sex toys since I first understood what they were. Back when I was underage, I was still masturbating. I was just making my own sex toys. I had one of those squiggle pens that you use to write weird lines and doodles, but like pretty much everybody else, apparently, I was using it to fuck myself. The teenager's vibrator, that thing was. In addition to using the squiggle pen, I was fucking everything that was remotely phallic-shaped and moderately safe to fuck. I say moderately safe to fuck because I was pretty stupid and also unsafe. I wasn't, like, fucking knives or anything, but I wasn't concerned about, say, only fucking things that I could sterilize. It kind of turns my stomach now, but my hairbrush handles definitely got a lot of use. I'm getting slightly off topic here. No one is surprised. I want to talk about my philosophy of sex toys, not the sex toys themselves. I mean, I'll be talking about that throughout all the podcasts. I'm always going to talk about toys. But in general, I think there's a problem where people only see sex toys as a replacement for a partner. There are tons of guys who are totally threatened when their female partner uses a vibrator or who are afraid she's going to pick a fake dick that's bigger than they are. Now, this is separate from the issues people have with masturbation in general, and that's its own philosophical discussion for another episode. Sex toys have a place in any sexual person's arsenal of tools. Oh, I kind of hate the word arsenal here. I'm not shooting off my vagina with sex toys. I guess toolbox? The most direct phrase is toy box, but I was going for a metaphor here. I think sex toys are a healthy addition to a person's sex life, whether that sex life includes solo sex, partnered sex, group sex, or all of the above. If you are a sex-averse or sex-repulsed asexual, no, you're probably not going to want to add sex toys, but there are asexual people who enjoy masturbation or solo sex. I'm directing this discussion toward people who engage in sexual activity regardless of who they engage in it with. Whom? Whom. Regardless of whom they engage in it with. Toys have a place in all these scenarios if all the people involved are on board with it. I feel like heteronormativity has done society many, many disservices, and one of them is the idea that the only way to have sex is for a man to stick his dick into a woman, and there are tons of people who have bought into that. I've definitely heard the idea that when two women have sex, they aren't really having sex unless there's a substitute penis involved. There are so many things wrong with the sex equals penis in vagina, PIV, intercourse belief. One of the most basics is that not all men have penises and not all women have vaginas. It minimized the experience of same-sex couples as being somehow less than heterosexual sex. It also leads to young people engaging in a lot of sexual behavior without taking responsibility for potential consequences because they don't see their behavior as sex. Like, oh, he fucked me in the ass, but that doesn't count, and so it's not really sex. Or, we don't need to worry about 
oral sex and possibly diseases because it's not really sex. This is closely aligned with our cultural problem of virginity. The definition of virginity is so problematic, and yet it's valued so, so highly, that you've got all these young people obsessing about whether or not they're still virgins after they've done certain sexual behaviors. I was the same way. I was raised in this virginity purity culture, and I defined myself as a virgin for so long that I didn't know how to define myself without this term. And yet, I was having oral sex and getting hand jobs and giving them. I was doing mutual masturbation. I was doing all this sexual stuff without really considering that, yes, it's all sex. Even though I delayed PIV intercourse for a fairly long time, at least according to American cultural standards, I was sexually active for a lot longer than I would have considered myself as being sexually active. Sex toys definitely tie into all of these ideas. If you only see sex as a man sticks a penis into a woman, and specifically into her vagina, then all the sexual things you do besides that are only viewed as leading up to PIV intercourse. It's all treated as foreplay instead of an experience in its own right. Some of the most memorable sexual encounters I've had have not involved penis and vagina at all. I've been fucked with toys in ways that felt more satisfying or maybe just more intense than traditional intercourse. I feel weird even saying traditional intercourse because what does that even mean nowadays? I want sex toys to be seen as just as valid a method of sex with another person as if they are sticking parts of themselves into each other. I talk about sex toys on this podcast every week, and I blog about them and tweet about them and talk about them in general because I need them to be normalized. Sex toys aren't kinky, people. I mean, okay, if you use a vibrator and you want to claim the title kinky because it makes you feel good, if that empowers you, awesome. You do you. But sex toys are more prevalent than people seem to realize. When I'm existing in my everyday life, I'm pretty open about toys. My friends all know about my extensive collection, and some have even seen it. If it comes up in conversation with an acquaintance, which, okay, it generally doesn't, but if it does, I'm open. I don't inflict this information on people out of the blue because I don't want to make people uncomfortable. But once those doors are open, I am walking through them. I want to normalize the discussion and use of sex toys. I have taken many friends shopping for toys in our local toy shop. I'm fortunate enough to have this amazing sex shop near me. It's called Oh My Sensuality Shop, and it's owned by a mother-daughter team who are phenomenal. It's a small store, but it has a ton of products. I've taken so many different people shopping there and been clearly so open with recommendations and preferences with them that I'm fairly sure the owner thinks I'm living this widely polyamorous lifestyle. And while, yes, I'm poly, at least to some degree, I'm not sleeping with everyone I take sex toy shopping with me. I probably would, though. Most of them, anyway. Reviewing sex toys has been another way for me to normalize the use of them. I've always bought my own, but now I get to try way more than I would otherwise be able to afford, and I think I'm a fair judge. Right now I'm reviewing for and affiliated with Tantus, Fun Factory, and I just signed on with Lavoca. I hope I'm saying that right. As an affiliate, I get a percentage of the sales that are made on the site as a result of my referral. 
As a reviewer, they also send me products to try out and review. The toys I want to talk about today are the Fun Factory Pulsator line. I've heard of these, and I had seen them in person at the Museum of Sex in New York City. Mosex has them all set up on a hanging system so that you can watch them work. It's very cool. The Fun Factory Pulsators don't vibrate. Well, one of them does, but that's not its primary function. Mostly they thrust. They have a magnetic drive of some kind on the inside. Don't ask me how it works. I'm not that kind of geek. And it feels like the toy is actually fucking you. It does. It moves back and forth on its own when it's turned on. The sensation is wild. I started out with the first one, the Eins. The first three have the names of German numbers, Eins, Zwei, Drei. I'm sorry for any people who speak German for my murdering of those first three words. It makes sense because Fun Factory is a German company. I liked the Eins. It doesn't give me as much clit stimulation as I want in order to get off easily, though. So I asked them to send me their newest model, which isn't called anything German. It's the Bistronic Fusion, and it's got a clit attachment on the outside that vibrates. We call it the Clit Cobra in my house because it looks like a cobra with its hood up. It's super cute. So the toy thrusts and the Clit Cobra vibrates, and it has a ton of patterns and combinations that you can set up with it. It's a very fun experience. If you want the full review, you should check it out on my blog at eliawinters.com because I went into a lot more detail about that toy. The Fun Factory Pulsators are a little more fancy than I tend to like in a toy. I generally buy fairly straightforward toys, toys that do one thing and do it well. It's become my default. A toy that vibrates and pulsates seems like a little too much for me. And to be honest, I'm mostly enjoying the novelty of it right now. I'm not sure if that novelty is going to wear off. Also, I haven't used it with a partner yet, so I'm open to that. That might change the experience. I really like that this toy feels like I have a mildly underpowered but still awesome fucking machine working between my legs, and it lets me have hands-free orgasms. Hands-free orgasms are seriously wonderful. I may not come as hard with a hands-free orgasm, but the convenience is ideal. I can set up the toy and then browse some porn and be able to have my hands available. I can touch my other parts, which is always important to me. It's not something I'm going to be in the mood for all the time. Well, I mean, touching my parts, I'm always going to be in the mood for that. But hands-free orgasms, I'm not always going to be in the mood for that. But I can imagine going back to this toy now and then when I want some lazy self-fucking. I love a good lazy solo fuck that I don't have to work for. It took me two uses of the Stronic Fusion in order to get to a point where the angle was exactly what I wanted. That's not a bad record, just two uses. Maybe the next time will be even better. I was inserting it too far at first, I think. It was much better when I put it angled more toward my G-spot and let the top of the Clit Cobra vibrate against my clit, rather than try to push it all the way in and then align the entire Clit Cobra along my clit. Like I would pull the external attachment back and nestle it up between my folds, but then the vibrator on the outside wasn't having as much room to move, I guess. I don't know. It was functional, but not as nice as just using the tip. That had better vibrations, and better vibrations are pretty good. So I'm actually giving away a Fun Factory Bistronic Fusion toy. It's new in box. I'm not giving away a used sex toy. 
although my bestie suggested that might be a more popular giveaway, I don't think so. That's not my bag. But hey, if it's yours, no judgment. Regardless, this one is an extra that the Fun Factory people sent me. I'm doing a raffle copter giveaway that's running now until January 28th. There are two ways to find it. You can either go to my Facebook page under Elia Winters and go to the giveaway tab, or you can go to my blog at eliawinters.com and visit the recent post where I review the Bystronic Fusion. And that post has the entry at the bottom. There are lots of ways to enter once you've found the little giveaway. Following me and Fun Factory on social media, commenting on my blog, buying any of my books, all these will get you entries. So check it out. This is a toy worth over $200, folks. That is not small potatoes. That's enough about the Fun Factory pulsators for now. I think they might come up again in future episodes. Time for the geeky part of the podcast. Now I'm going to take you folks for a walk down memory lane. Well, for some of you, this is a walk down memory lane. Others of you might not remember any of this because you're too young. I teach high school in my real life, and I was recently explaining to my students what I've seen in terms of portable storage during my lifetime. I was born in 1981, and I'm part of a segment of my generation within about a five or six year window where we were the last real generation to have to learn new technology as it was evolving. I'm not sure how to describe that, but if you're part of this same era, or born around 1977 from then to about 1982 or 1983, if you're within that little window, you understand what I mean. We had a really unique experience when it comes to technology. I was triggered into this little reminiscence because one of my students was doing some video editing, and he was complaining that the computer was lagging when he was trying to import, as he called it, a tiny little 11 meg music file. This made me laugh because I remember when 11 megs was anything but tiny. I remember playing games on the old five and a quarter inch floppy disks. My students asked why they were called floppy disks, and I had to explain that they were actually floppy. Their minds were totally blown. They've never seen that. Then after this, we had what continued to be known as floppy disks, the little three and a half inch hard plastic disks, the ones you could buy in a pack of 10 for about five or $10. I don't even remember how much they cost. Our computer lab in college sold them in the vending machines. My whole life existed on those things, and they were so easy to break, but they held one and a half megs. That was enough for all the Word documents you were using generally. But then we started to need more storage because Napster became a thing and we were all furiously torrenting music and viruses onto our computers. This was the late 90s, right before the turn of the millennium, and the thing to do was invest in a zip drive. Not the USB sticks, but the disk drive for your computer. Zip drives cost about $100 to put into the computer, like the drive itself was 100 bucks, and then you installed it, and they took zip disks, which would hold 100 megs. Zip disks were these thick disks, generally blue, although you could get them in different colors if you wanted to be fancy. At the time, I couldn't imagine why you'd need more than one. Each zip disk cost about $10, if I'm remembering properly, but that was fine because one of them could hold my entire college experience and a few dozen songs. 
When we switch from zip disks to USB sticks, variously called zip drives, nerd sticks, USB sticks, jump drives, probably about a dozen other things, those were crazy expensive. Now they're so cheap that I have a few of them loose in my house, each eight gigs or more, and I don't even know where they all are. In the less than 15 years since I left college, we've gone from three and a half inch floppy disks that held 1.5 megs to a portable USB stick that holds eight gigs, the equivalent of over 5,300 three and a half inch floppies. Yep, I did the math. And now it's all cloud storage, and cloud storage is nearly unlimited. My students can't fathom this. When I talk about it, I feel like a dinosaur. And yet the growth of technology didn't even seem weird at first. It was just growing and changing with the times, and the times were a-changing. There's something so wonderful about old games, though. It's nostalgia, sure, but it's not only nostalgia. Those games were also simple and quality. This brings me to today's geeky focus, the Oregon Trail. I don't know if it's comforting or disturbing that if you Google the Oregon Trail, you have to go four entries down before you get to the actual historical westward expansion movement. The first three entries, including the first Wikipedia entry, are all about what is arguably, to me, the best computer game of all time. I remember sitting at the lone Apple IIe computer in my second grade classroom and watching Heartbroken as all my friends died along the way to Oregon. I did some research for this podcast because it can't all be stuff that comes out of my head or goes into my vagina. There's an article by Matt Janser on smithsonian.com where he talks about the prevalence of the Oregon Trail game, along with a bunch of other games I remember, like Number Munchers, Word Munchers, and Lemonade Stand. I vaguely remember Lemonade Stand. Apparently, all these games, along with ones I don't remember, like The Yukon Trail, The Secret Island of Dr. Quandry, Dino Park Tycoon, which sounds awesome, and Storybook Weaver, were all run by the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium, or MECC. MECC partnered with Apple to try to make computers part of the American educational system. The Oregon Trail itself, the game, not the covered wagon route, was created by three student teachers, Don Rowich, Bill Heineman, and Paul Dillenberger. I'm so sorry if I'm pronouncing your names wrong, guys. These guys created it for an eighth grade history class Rowich was teaching back in 1971. He got hired by MECC a few years later, and they hired him to revive the game, which he did to great success. I've never heard of this story before I started doing this research, but when I told it to my husband and my bestie, they were both like, oh yeah, I knew that. So that took a little of my thunder away. I thought I'd discovered this cool new thing that nobody knew. Of course, I also hang out with nerds. I probably shouldn't be surprised that they knew the history of the Oregon Trail game. I'm also probably, I realize now, pissing off people in Oregon, because I think that if you say Oregon, they make fun of you a lot. I, I'll do my best, but it's, it's Oregon Trail, that's how I say it. I'm sorry. I think what makes the Oregon Trail game so fantastic is its complete mercilessness. I was playing this game at six years old, And this game didn't care. Your wagon catches fire, burning up all your supplies, so your family's going to starve to death. Tough shit. You got a snake bite? Yep, probably gonna die. It's a really harsh game looking back. 
I think what made it so particularly heart-wrenching is that you get to name the members of your party. So, of course, we all named the party members after our friends. Then began the journey towards slow, inevitable death. It was unlikely that everyone would make it to Oregon. The Oregon Trail taught me quite a bit. I still remember that you leave from Independence, Missouri, and April was a good month to go. I learned that if you chose to be a farmer for the point bonus at the end, you weren't going to get that point bonus because you were going to be unable to buy enough supplies and starve to death somewhere around Chimney Rock. I also learned that squirrels are generally too fast to shoot, and no matter how many bison you kill, you can only carry 200 pounds of meat back to the wagon. Too bad the American settlers didn't learn that one, huh? Before they wiped out all of the bison. I also learned what meager meant, since those were the rations that I had to put my family on in order to survive between hunting trips. The hunting was probably the most exciting part of the Oregon Trail game. I used to hunt all the time, my little white stick figure guy holding his shotgun at the ready, trying not to waste any bullets, because those fuckers were expensive and nobody would trade them with you. I was not a good hunter. My family only made it to Oregon. See, now I'm saying Oregon, not Oregon, because I'm being really conscious about it. Anyway, my family only made it there because I played a banker and had enough money to buy lots and lots of food. I still liked hunting, though. I think all the kids liked hunting, probably a little too much. I think my worst Oregon Trail experience was when I decided that instead of taking the Barlow Toll Road, which I didn't even need to look up, by the way, I just remember it, I would float down the Columbia River. This was in the days when you couldn't save your game, by the way. You just had to commit to shit. Back in my day, you couldn't, you couldn't save your game and have a way out. We died in our games. We are happy about it. Okay, we weren't happy about it. I definitely wasn't happy when, after over an hour of playing Oregon Trail and bringing most of my party safely to the final stage of the journey, my complete ineptness at video games means I crashed into the rocks and killed everyone in the entire wagon. Boom. Dead. Drowned in the river. We had survived snake bites, broken arms, thieves, fires, dysentery, meager rations, living on berries, caulking the wagon and floating it across the other rivers, hunting days when there was nothing to hunt but one fucking squirrel that ran through the corner of the screen, all to arrive here and drown in the Columbia River because my cheap ass would not pay to take the fucking Barlow toll road. We all have regrets in life, and I regret being too fucking cheap to take the Barlow Toll Road. But I learned an important lesson that day, about sometimes money is the best solution, and if you don't have any, you're going to hit a rock and probably drown. That's really fucking bleak, but thanks, Oregon Trail. I sound bitter, but the fact is, this game was iconic for my childhood. They've rebooted it several times since then, but I'm like one of those old people who goes back to their hometown and complains about how much better it used to be. You can't update Oregon Trail. The charm of it was its completely boring graphics. The white oxen who didn't move, but the ground moved behind them. The black text on a white background. The still photos of 8-bit monuments accompanied by uncomfortably dissonant MIDI music. That's what made that game awesome. It had the right mix of hard to win with rewards spaced just far enough to keep you playing. I'm not actually sure what the rewards were now that I've said that. 
probably when you were caulking the wagon to float it across and that sliver of land appeared on the other side so you knew you weren't going to capsize. Or when you got to those random berries and got to avoid starving for a few days. Or when you found the abandoned wagon and got to cannibalize it for supplies. I completely ignored the fact that the wagon was abandoned because all the inhabitants had died. Another unexpected Oregon Trail lesson. Sometimes your own survival has to come first. They've now come out with an Oregon Trail card game. I saw it in the store and I thought, huh, that might be fun. But then I read some reviews about it and the reviews are not favorable. Maybe it's because there's so much nostalgia with the original Oregon Trail and you can't duplicate that in a new medium. I don't know. I'm commenting on the game without having actually played the game. And maybe that's not fair, but hey, it's my podcast. I can speculate. The feedback I got from reading the reviews said that gameplay is pretty fast, but it's almost impossible to get to Oregon. Everyone in your party dies quite a bit. There are lots and lots of terrible things that happen. Maybe that's the ultimate goal of the game. Lots of terrible things happen in the computer game, too. But there's always a general sense of success. I got to Oregon more times than I died. I'd pretty much always lose a party member along the way. But that was normal, right? Not everyone can make it to Oregon. But I was the party leader, and I made it. So that seemed pretty good to me. But if the card game is just an endless series of losing, and you can't even hunt anything, I'm not here for that. I'll whip out an emulator and play the original online. So what about you readers? Did you play Oregon Trail back on an Apple IIe like I did, or maybe in one of the reboots? Have you played the card game and is it any good? Send me an email and let me know. You can email me at comeandplaypodcast at gmail.com. Speaking of email, let me share one with you. I got an email from Sir Penguin after my discussion of the Hitachi Wand, which was, I think, two episodes ago. And here is what he writes. I just started listening to your podcast and I love it. As a very nerdy and secret kinkster, it hits all of my buttons. Your candid transition of talking about D&D to sex toys makes me smile so much. I feel like I'm listening to a good friend I never knew I wanted. Please keep making it. Aw, thanks, Sir Penguin. I will. His email goes on. Anyway, I heard your question from episode two regarding the Hitachi Magic Wand. I bought my wife one for Valentine's Day a few years ago. We bought our first vibrator several years ago, but never really used it much. It's battery-powered and good for travel, but never really did anything mind-blowing. Sir Penguin, that's actually pretty common. Most of the battery-powered ones that people purchase as first vibrators don't tend to have very many features, and they're often not that strong. He goes on, Like many, unfortunately, relationships, sex was fun, but usually ended when I had an orgasm. I never liked that, so I kept urging her to come with me to get sex toys to use. She just never really cared much. Our little vibrator rarely saw any use because it took so long to get her off, but I knew she could get off with clitoral stimulation. I'd seen the Hitachi so many times in videos, I decided to buy her one. Funnily enough, I busted it out two days before Valentine's Day when her feet were sore after we spent all day at the Renaissance Fair. So, orgasm machine and massager, two for one purchase. Anyway, it makes it so easy for her to get off now. I enjoy watching her use it, and I insist she use it after we have sex. I know sex is pleasurable on its own, but I'm not going to bed until my wife has come, dang it. In conclusion, the Hitachi has been magical. He wrote the little 
laugh in parentheses magical for our sex lives but this oscillator sounds rad too i might need to get one of those to mix it up love the podcast i know you probably write most of your monologue but if you made your podcast longer that would be great cheers sir penguin thank you so much for writing sir penguin i really appreciate your email like I said before, it's pretty common for those battery-powered vibrators to not be able to do very much, at least the ones that most people get for starters. Battery-powered vibrators can be excellent. Most of mine now are battery-powered, but I'm purchasing from more higher-end and expensive companies, and if people aren't used to sex toys, they generally aren't ready to jump in and make that sort of investment right away. Kudos for prioritizing her orgasm as well as your own. I think it's pretty important that both partners have a reasonable expectation of orgasm during intercourse whenever that's physically possible. There's a little caveat in that for many people, orgasm is just not that important. It's really important to me, so I can't understand that point of view personally, but intellectually, like it makes sense that people have different priorities during sex. I just want to make sure that women aren't defaulting to that because it's become a societal expectation that he comes. And if you come, that's really nice. I don't believe in that. I think every partner should have the opportunity to orgasm if they want one. I think it's awesome that the Hitachi Magic Wand is working for you guys. That's fantastic. I agree that it also makes a really good back massager. We've definitely used it for that in our house, too. The oscillator, um, the oscillator that I mentioned in, I think it was episode two, is a wonderful purchase. It's different from the Hitachi Magic Wand. And if the Hitachi's working for you, go for it. But if you want to switch things up a little, the Oroslator is pricey, but it is fantastic. It's a magnificent, magnificent toy. If you do pick up an Oroslator, drop a line, let me know what you think. And again, thank you for writing in. As for the rest of you readers, I'd love to get email from you. Write to comeandplaypodcast at gmail.com. Ask me your questions about sex toys or share your sex toy stories. Tell me about the classic games you liked playing. I'll share your letters on the air and respond. That's all for this week. Thanks for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed the show. If you're having a good time, recommend us to your friends. Leave us a nice review on iTunes. As always, stay geeky and kinky. Come and Play Podcast is produced by Elia Winters. Like Elia, the theme music is so easy. It's by Jazzar and is being used under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike license. Check out more about Jazzar on betterwithmusic.com.